Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk, in theory, survive a pandemic, make a podcast. We are glad you're here. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And so as we were sort of gathering our thoughts before we got started, you said that you had two things that you were astonished at this week. So please, I need them. What are you <laughs> well, astonished? I don't know if you do, but uh, here we go. Anyway, uh, well, let me start with a nerdy analogy. You know, when you're watching um, a Star Wars movie and... No. uh, No, no, you don't watch those? Okay. Well, go on. if you've seen clips of a Star Wars movie, um, there are times when a spaceship goes into hyperspeed the pilot will press a button or pull um, a lever and uh, all of a sudden the stars around them become streaks of light and they end up in their new place. They've just accelerated at some amazing mind-blowing speed. And it seems to me that in this season, even though it seems to be, the, the days seem to be long and slow, that I, sense, no, not sense, but I see in retrospect, especially as we um, have so many stay-at-home orders being lifted and, you know, going into very various phases of that. As I look back on our time, I feel a certain acceleration, especially when it comes to the ministry of the church. You know, our little congregation of 50 people, mostly uh, retired um, I'm in my upper 40s, and I'm one of the youngest people there. You know, we didn't have much of an online presence. Uh, We were not doing a lot in the community. We're doing some. Um, But we were stable, but just kind of happy in our place. And this season has really accelerated uh, the ministry in a way that I could not have anticipated at the beginning of the year. Uh, we have accomplished more in the past two months than in the past, I think, two years. Um, and it's really an exciting time for us. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm so tired. But I'm excited about what's happening in our congregation. And we have it, you know, in hyperspeed, you hit the button and the ship speeds through and then you suddenly land in your place. Well, we have not stopped yet. Um, and we probably will not stop for months and months. There's there's just an acceleration that has happened. And um, I, I think I may have said on this podcast that our elders have said, we are not going back to in-person services until we formulate a plan to go to the next level of outreach to our neighborhood and there is a plan to go to the next level in worship, to, to shift the worship culture away from um, this vibe of, of people in the pews being passive observers of worship. You know, those of us on the platform are doing the worship and, you know, you evaluate it by whether or not you, you thought it was good. We're shifting to... Um, 
a church culture in which we're inviting everyone to enter in and to be worshipers. And there are lots of Zoom conversations going on in our church community about when we enter the sanctuary, what kind of church are we going to be? We There's this growing sense that it will not be pleasing to God if we go back to in-person services and simply worship in a way that we've always worshiped. The, yeah. th there's a heightened sense of gratitude that I think is going to fuel our worship culture. And I'm, I'm super excited about that. I mean, that is so, I mean, that's, that is just balm for my soul because I think that right now we are, and rightly so, really focused on everything that is hard and scary and dangerous and the suffering of this of these days and it is just super good to remember that um new life comes out of periods of uncertainty and change and pain and suffering and and so um that's i mean that's just so good to be not to deny the reality of what's happening now but to say we we've been singing a song at the Grove lately called God is up to something. Mm. And that's just sort of the, the chorus. Um, he is up to something. He is up to something. He is up to something right now. And I mean, that's really helpful because um, I have no optimism or hope in myself, but you know, like we both like that passage from what second Chronicles 20, where they yes. go into the battlefield and they're totally outnumbered and they just, worship and say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so to be able to say, like, if you're not in this, then we're not going to make it. But if you are in this, then we can lean forward into something, into something better. We don't want to return. So that's really great. So what else are you astonished by? Well, you know, we've talked about this for, uh, well, it's been a while. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I am a connoisseur of YouTube travel videos. And since, oh, last summer, um, I have especially watched videos featuring um, Ghana, West Africa, especially the city of Accra and um, now Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, shout out to all the YouTubers in, in um especially Eastern Africa uh, or Western Africa. Uh, but I'm astonished by videos I've been seeing this week saying, appealing to African-Americans. See, this is why you need to move to Accra. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is why you need to move to Lagos. And these videos are not given in a snarky, ridiculely kind of way. They are often sincere um, pleading. Uh, we are concerned about you. We care about you. Um, and as someone who has lived in this country you know, all my life and um, has heard the narrative, uh, this is the greatest place ever. Yeah. It is very disorienting to hear someone 
in another part of the world say, we think you need our help. Um, yeah, I mean, especially because it's another part of the world that we sort of like Americans, white Americans, especially tend to like tokenize and mythologize and, you know, deem quote undeveloped or underdeveloped or, you know, un uncivilized. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, all of those things are fundamentally pathologically untrue, but, um, you know, you have our current president calling all African nations shithole countries. And so there is just a sort of really, um, I mean, it's a cognitive dissonance worth noting that you have people in power here thinking, oh, it would be terrible to be from there and let's keep all those people out of here. And the reality is people in other places are saying, man, it, it, would, it would be terrible to be an American, especially an American of African descent. You, you, you really let, let us rescue you. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that's astonishing me about you know, these videos is I did not know that uh, you know, people are saying the next, you know how you know, if you see pictures of, of Dubai, there's, it's this yeah. glistening you know, city. The next Dubai is being built right now in Lagos, Nigeria. It's called um, Echo Atlantic City. Um, and it, it is amazing. The, the city of Accra is astonishingly beautiful. And I was watching a, a video earlier this week, and uh, the, the YouTuber said, okay, Westerners, when you think of Africa, you usually think of this. And then they flash to, you know, giraffes yeah. and rhinos. And, um, and it's really, it looks like this. And then you get all of these beautiful city skylines. And um, yeah, so th that's what's astonished me. Just this appeal uh, from the continent um, to go home, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, I grew up in the 70s, like skating in my basement to Marlo Thomas's Free to Be You and Me on Sesame Street and then the Electric Company. And I, I grew up taught, um, and I, and, you know, my parents made what was a pretty um, unpopular and, and um, minority choice in their set to not, when Louisville schools desegregated, um, just, I mean, just right before I started, they didn't desegregate, they started busing right before I was going to begin school and I'm their oldest daughter. And, and that's where, um, some of Louisville's biggest private schools then came <laughs> like, whoa, all of a sudden we need a private school system. But, um, my parents decided not to do that, even though their neighbors across the street said, if you love your child, <laughs> you won't put her on that bus. So I, um, you know, I grew up with the myth of America, the melting pot, free to be you and me, Sesame Street, you know, this diverse, loving community and electric company teaching me, Morgan Freeman's teaching me to spell and about justice. And I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. And I went to elementary school at Whitney Young Elementary School on 36th and Muhammad Ali. So, I mean, I grew up um, with a very compelling and obviously very simplistic and one-dimensional view of what America was and that and I grew up learning about America w well before I ever learned anything about Jesus and so I think um 
you know, I had a, a, a vision of multicultural church that was probably more shaped by the civic myth than any myth making that was happening in the context of the church. Um, and it is just like heartbreakingly um, apparent to me right now that I mean, it's not even a question anymore of if, you know, obviously the melting pot is a troubling analogy and it's not even a question of whether or not um, it is possible to be a healthy um, multi-ethnic nation. It just feels as though once again, it is a question of if anybody would even want that anymore. And that deeply saddens me. Like I am so here for people um, correcting the whatever Howard Zen and the lies my teacher taught me and correcting the um, mythology of America and calling, you know, I learned about manifest destiny and then I had to unlearn that and relearn about like, no, that was called genocide. Right. I mean, so I, I'm here for all of the um, recovering the, the truth that America has never been great and has never ever lived up to its founding promises. Um, but I still very much believe in aspiring for a healthy, just, multi-ethnic nation. And I think, you know, growing in the soil of the trauma and suffering of um, peoples who who were brought here against their will or who who survived genocide. I mean, to, I you know, to keep the promise also of um, the Statue of Liberty. That I mean, you know, I I I still want to aspire to that because I think, you know, that is the kingdom of God. And um, and but I'm, I mean, I hear you. I understand why people. Um, in Ghana would say, I don't know why anyone with brown skin would want to stay in this nation ever. And um, I mean, just the awakening of the hypocrisy of what we've said um, about who we are and, and who we actually are, we being you know, America as a white supremacist nation. It's just, it's astonishing. And I, but I, I still want to aspire to achieving that promise for the first time through reparations, through truth and reconciliation. Um, I don't want to let go of that reality that we don't have to wait until eternity to have all of, you know, all those created in the image of God being able to um, live and neighbor and work together. Um, but it, but it is just heartbreaking right now to see, I mean, it's right, it's healthy, but it just takes your breath away to watch some people realize for the first time how like the image that comes to me is just like pus, like just like an, an infection that is hidden and covered over for so long that, you know, the evil has just com been compounded and compounded and compounding. And you see it for the first time and you think how 
how could we ever, how could we ever move on? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you about the struggle for a just multi-ethnic society. One of the things that encourages me is that that struggle is going on in many places around the world. And it has a unique feel, a unique history here. Um, but that that struggle, there, there's so many points of contact with places around the world. I was, <laughs> I was watching a, a video today of um, uh, my, my wife is Korean, and I was telling her about this woman who was being interviewed in Ghana. She is a third generation resident. She's like, oh, yeah, there's a Korean grocery store down the street because my grandmother owns it. And in so many places around the world, there's there's this increasing multi-ethnic life. And I think we would be both wise and faithful, uh, not, not simply as Americans, but as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to lean into that. It is the image of the peaceable kingdom of Christ is creating a new family. Um, that world, that that kingdom is um, inaugurated. It will be made fully manifest. So it is our um, Christian calling to lean into that, to advance that, to live into it. And so, yeah, I I love that kind of stuff. Well, and I just, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, in the 70s, when I grew up with Marlo Thomas basically telling me that 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 we already were the beloved community, right? That America already had achieved this and on Sesame Street, you know, whatever, Mark and Maria and Mr. Hooper. And I mean, they all, they're all neighbors. They're all like, you know, and so, you know, it's just, it's been such any like, I mean, whatever, don't come at me. I was a kid. So like when grownups tell you, oh, this is what the world is, you go, oh, great. Like, I'm so happy to live in this place with this, with this country. And I think partly, you know, what I, what I think they were saying is um, talking about just the, the nature of prejudice and how we could lay aside prejudice and we could lay aside, you know, sort of the, the faulty theology and biology that different ethnicities of people um, were, you know, could be ranked or there could be some sort of hierarchy and, and all of the, um, social construct of race, but what they never talked to us about on Sesame Street was the systems, right? Like you never talked about, you know, systemic racism and how, you know, there, there was no, um, there was no level playing field for the start because of generational intentional inequity. And so, you know, on this, uh, again, whatever, like Marlo Thomas was like, we're all free to be you and me. And I literally grew up singing that song. And so it takes, I mean, honestly, it takes coming to Christ and then, you know, leaning into the study of the scriptures um, where, where, you know, then the apostle Paul, you know, you lean in and, and, and the spirit of truth will guide you into facing the truth that you, that, that just feels like it's too, it's too big to confront. Um, but it isn't too big to confront. Yeah, because the, the message I was getting was the world is a dangerous place. Right. You must navigate it. You're not the same. You must be aware of difference because if you are not aware, 
you will find yourself in a very bad, dangerous situation, dangerous for you. And so yeah. wisdom dictates that you be aware from a very early age. But in a similar way, as I lean into the truth of scripture, I can see both those systems. I can see the danger and I can see um, Christ overcoming. And so in, in some way, um, in some very real ways, we come at it you know, from different directions, but can end up in the same place. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, I, I have a, a friend who's a leader in this community, Justin Perry, and he was doing some writing about some of the protests that were happening this week. And I thought, I mean, he's just someone I really like, like to listen to. And he was talking about the protests that went through Myers Park on Monday night, um, protesting police brutality. And um, he, he, he was sort of talking about his experience in that. And, and he was saying, you know, this, this route was chosen deliberately because this is a neighborhood of some of the wealthiest, whitest neighborhoods in Charlotte. And it, and it isn't an accident, right? I mean, there were red line residency laws um, that, that made this the community that it is. And so partly, I mean, a huge part is to say people in this neighborhood are never going to be affected by police brutality ever. So we, we bring the march through this neighborhood so that you can't say, oh, I didn't know, or so that it does affect you in some kind of small way. But the other thing he said that I thought was really, really helpful is he also pointed out that that is a neighborhood where there's a tremendous amount of wealth and social capital. And it was leaders in that neighborhood that did peacefully desegregate and integrate, not desegregate, but integrate Charlotte school systems. And so it's so, you know, with there, there's this legacy of, I mean, of collective guilt that needs to be faced and, um, you know, and, and seeking um, repentance and, um, and a new way. But also there is a legacy of times when that social capital and power has been harnessed to do what was not only righteous, but was ultimately for the best, you know, in everyone's best interest. And that's the, the big lie is that righteousness will somehow cost people on quote on the quote top and the reality that we can speak to as ministers of the gospel of Christ as disciples of Christ is no righteousness is actually the true win-win situation does it cause change like like things needing to change hands I mean absolutely but it is the true win-win situation and uh, and I think that's what's hopeful for me is to say to people you know along with the guilt and shame of saying like these systems didn't fall from the sky they were designed by my father, by my grandfather, um, to to dominate and and destroy and cause suffering to the forebearers of my brothers and sisters. So, like that, those were deliberate choices. But the shadow side of acknowledging that, of acknowledging that, is to say, okay, but if those systems were choices, then then we can make new systems with different choices and different values. It's not like we have to figure out a workaround for gravity, right? Like we can say, hey, we have a police force that exists to protect and serve our citizens. These are the values we want you to function by now. And then, I mean, we can do that. And so I, I think that's what's really important is it's not just about, I mean, I do think for sure there's a there's a stage of white people really um, 
coming to terms and grieving and repenting and seeking, um, you, you know, really seeking forgiveness in meaningful ways. Um, and then following the leads of, um, you know, black and brown brothers who have been victims of the system to say, um, we, we want to support you leading us to building a system that really will create shalom flourishing for all of us. And we know it can be done. Um, so that's, yeah, I just really, I, I'm, I'm trying to stay grounded in, I mean, like, I think the warp speed thing, while it's a super nerdy analogy, <laughs> I told you. I do think, I mean, one might have gone not to Star Wars, but to like, you know, Greek New Testament class and talk about like, this is really Kairos time. I really do think that this is just a, a chunk of chronological time that has whatever eschatological um, implications. That's pretty awesome jargon that I fit <laughs> to hey. that one. You just went another direction with your nerd. Let's let the record show. I know. Let the record show. Pathetic. That was pathetic. But I just mean like, I do think this is an extraordinary season. Um, and that, I mean, things are going to change. And mm -hmm. so we, we just need to be incredibly intentional about seeking, you know, seeking which side we're on in you know, the battle that's going on right now. As I watched uh, protest coverage here in Charlotte, I was encouraged by the number of white people I saw in the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I was just going to say for my astonishment is, um, so we, I, I, I have been, um, so I was at protests on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, and I, um, have been, I mean, it just is really, um, it's hard to talk about because it's just obnoxious when white people talk about it in a way that makes it seem like it's a big deal. And like, seriously, all we're doing is taking a walk. And so that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. It just means we need to really understand <laughs> what an honor it is to be invited in. Um, and what a, what a gift it is to be able to, what a grace it is to be able to repent and turn around and walk in a different way. Um, and to really understand, I mean, like, like I think a lot about like Paul sort of refusing any kind of, any kind of adulation from people about how awesome he was and just sort of saying like, but no, I know who I used to be. <laughs> so I, um, and I just feel like white people, I mean, it's not like you have to like crawl on your knees over glass for the rest of your life and perpetual shame and self-loathing. But like, I don't know, my friend Lindsay Rich carried a sign to the one on Sunday that said, white humility in Jesus will save us. <laughs> I was like, that's a pretty that's great good. Uh, saying. Um, but I think, the one thing that I noticed that just is astonishing is so, I mean, we're all, you know, in this huge fight right now about like, so how we, how we, what is, what is responsible living in a global pandemic, right? And like, we've been given these very simple guidelines by 
Centers for Disease Control and the WHO about like, this is what you can do as an individual citizen to help stop the spread of this pandemic. And it's, you know, wash your hands and wear a mask. And if you're not wearing a mask for yourself, you're wearing a mask for other people. And then that's just become this huge flashpoint about like freedom and responsibility and like, I can do what I want and government can't require this of me and I'm going to be fine and everybody should just go ahead and get it because they're going to get it anyway. And I mean, it's just awful. And, and when I do go out, I mean, it's so interesting to note in different spaces, like what the culture is around mask wearing. And so like I, there's, I used to shop at several grocery stores. Now I only shop at one because there's one grocery store where they wear masks. I have friends who work retail and like, at some stores, their managers and owners are, are saying, our, our employee, here's a mask for our employees. We're requiring everyone to wear a mask. Um, I, I have one friend um, who owns a restaurant who's like, for the sake of protecting his employees, it's like, everyone has to wear a mask and I'm actually going to provide you a mask. So if a customer comes in and they don't have a mask, we'll just say, you know, and people fight and people don't want to. And you go into these spaces where just you know, it's this point of pride that I will not wear a mask and I am not afraid, quote, of you dying, right? Um, and so you're at this protest that's been, these protests that are, you know, in some spaces really um, demonized as, you know, lawless. And I mean, the president of the United States is talking about these people are, you know, thugs and just all kinds of looters and rioters and blah, blah, blah. And like everyone is wearing a mask which is just consistent with the values, right? You're marching to say, I want to stop violence against vulnerable people. And so when you show up to do that, you wear a mask, even though it's hot and even though it's hard to breathe and even though it's hard to chant. And so, I mean, I'm just astonished to see this group of people who, who I mean, especially people of color, who in the midst of just incredibly raw trauma, are, are still wearing a mask to protect other people's lives. And it's just, I mean, there are just times where you just think, you know, what's that line about the prophets and the martyrs that like the world just does not deserve them. I mean, just the beauty of a people who in the midst of such trauma and suffering and, and in such uncontroversial, un, you know, unarguable evidence that so many people in the society do not care about them. And when they will show up to, you know, protest their right to just not be murdered in the streets by institutions that their tax dollars pay for that swear to serve and protect them, that they will still show up and put on a mask to protect other people's lives. And mm. it's just astonishing. So. Wow. Yeah. Part of the difference is, uh, well, you mentioned the word values, I think. And, you know, when you value us more than I, uh, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll do that. If, if the focus is on the individual, then yeah, it's about, I can do what I want. You can't tell me what to do, even if it harms you. But if the mm -hmm. value is us, if the value is we, then I will set aside some of my comfort for your sake. Yeah, well, it's just, I, it, it was a real, it, it was just a beautiful, mm. a, a beautiful thing. 
to see. I mean, and, and also like you're in the middle of the sea of people who are angry and so are shouting, you know, their anger, which is, I mean, fair enough. But I mean, like, you're hearing people shout like F the police, but through their masks, right? Like it's just this cognitive dissonance of like deep self-giving love and concern and also righteous um, anger and just the way that those things are held at the same time would just take your breath away if you have eyes to see. And so I just feel like, I mean, anybody in this country now, period, I mean, <laughs> I, it, if you don't take a side, you are really taking a side. Mm. And you got to look at who's doing what you're doing right now and think, you know, are these the people that I want to be aligned with? Because for me, I want to be aligned with the people who are on the street in 80 degree weather, like holding, sobbing young men, kneeling in memory of a life and wearing a mask to protect everyone around them. Like that, that those are the people I, I want to follow. Um, so mm. anyway. Wow. Well, what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Um, well, continuing what we've just been talking about, you know, I've been having some conversations with people, um, white people who are upset um, over the killing, the murder of George Floyd and um, some are seeing some things for the first time or for the first time in a long time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and, you know, because I'm an African-American pastoring a historically white church, there's stuff there. And um I've been thinking about how I navigate racism in the US because in my ministry context, I'm very aware, probably more aware than anyone else in the room that from the outside looking in, uh, one might conclude that I am unaffected by racism, um, by how I live, where I live, how I live, how I carry myself, one might draw the conclusion. And apparently, you know, some have. And so yeah, I, I've been thinking about um, and sharing with people how I navigate racism, um, because it is not easy. And the way I navigate things isn't the only way. It's not even the best way. It's a way, happens to be my way. Uh, it's probably a combination of both uh, the good parenting I received as a child and um, instruction in the scripture, those two things together have really helped me to navigate um, 
this society. Uh, so, and, and my model is really kind of, um, it's like Israel in exile in Babylon, right? They are strangers in a strange land. Um, and they are told, listen, build houses, seek the welfare of the city, do well. I mean, live your yeah. life. And that's one of one of my strategies is just to focus on building my life uh, and to be aware of the systems, to be aware of the dangers that are out there, but to not as, as much as possible. And it is a place of privilege to be able to do this as much as possible. Keep moving in spite of, and that's, that's hard, but it's kind of the my Angelou mentality and still I rise in spite of it and still, yeah. even if it's just a tiny baby step, even if it means I just crawl, I'm going to move forward. I'm, I'm going to live my life. Um, another part of my strategy is uh, be angry, but don't let it consume you. So for better or for worse, this is not, you know, I'm not saying this is the way that people should do it, but the way I manage is to be aware that I've got anger brewing on the inside and it's, it's, it is there. It's boiling. It is very real. Um, but I, I actively manage it because if I don't, it will, it will, it will distort my life. And so when I hear people criticizing protesters I say, well, well, you don't do that. Those people, you know, but but you don't. I have to remind people. Look, I'm managing my. I'm I'm just as angry as those folk, but I've chosen this path. You you cannot you you can't judge them. I I am right. I'm the same as them. My their feelings are my feelings. So right, and I think it's important to point out like you didn't choose the path that you've chosen to make white people more comfortable, right? Like that's not why you are yes. moving through the world in the way that you're moving through the world. It's and about think, survival and advancing, <laughs> right? Those two right. things. And I, I mean, and I think like so much of what I, I hear from white people in these days is like, I mean, literally like, yeah, yeah, it was bad, but like, you know, I, I mean, since, like, what they were saying is I'm uncomfortable with what I am seeing on my television screens. That makes me feel bad. So could if you could just stop doing the thing that makes me feel bad. And yeah. if you could just, you, you're, you know, you're allowed to be angry. Huh? You're allowed to be sad. Good white people who think they're in charge giving permission, you know, but we need you to express those feelings in a different way or somehow you know, you're not allowed to, you know, you're not allowed to express them in that way. And I think it's just so important for white people to call one another out and just be like, I, I like, I am sorry. Like you don't get to create a system that murders people and then police the way that people grieve the fact that their children are being slaughtered in the streets. And the fact that you think you can, it's just a level of caucasity. <laughs> That is really, it's a great I word. Mean, defies, it, that is 
love Ajay's word. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think, and that's just an amazing, and you just see it like yeah. all the time. And, um, and I am not trying to fix that. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to fix that for you. I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. too busy living my life to try to, um, make you feel better about what's making you feel bad. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is so important is for white people to physically be in a space where you are providing support and um, maybe even physical safety for black bodies to express collective rage, which is allowed. I mean, good Lord, look at the rallies that yeah. got our current president elected. So it's not that we live in a society where it's not acceptable to express anger and rage. It's just that white people have been taught that they're the only people who are allowed to express those emotions. Yeah. I mean, we celebrate the Boston Tea Party, right? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> folks dressed up they got rioting. on a british ship and yeah <laughs> they looted a I british mean, ship <laughs> and beyond that i mean as followers of jesus christ i mean when jesus walked into the table and flipped over the temples that was a riot and you know people in fact arrested him for that for what disturbing the peace and you know and and people would would definitely have said like even if you have a point about what people are doing wrong I don't understand how it helps anybody to destroy your own temple I mean like just the idea of the law and order crowd not only you know have this self-understanding that they get to do whatever they want but that they also get to be offended by the reaction to the things that they've done (laughs) So, yeah, um, yeah. Well, and you know, a part of my own strategy is to, and I didn't do this for a long time. I didn't do this in my 20s. And it was toward the end of my 20s when I really started to do this. And it was so helpful to me is to acknowledge the pain of my own trauma and, yeah. and, to, and to allow myself moments when it gets to me allow myself seasons, days to allow the ridiculousness of racism to get to me. And, and it, it can be a, it's a kind of relief valve for me. And since my twenties, I, I do that pretty regularly so that I don't lose my mind right and yeah. so it is very helpful to me and and you're right uh, so many of us just need spaces to be free to um express the grief the pain the anger the fear of 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 uh trauma past so yeah. well and i you know the answer for white people is to is i mean to the extent that you to the extent that it's public, right? Like not, not that you demand anything from someone who is suffering, but to the extent that people are going out into the streets and saying, this is our reality and we want you to know it, what white people need to do is bear witness to that and be uncomfortable viscerally and then to say, we want to stop participating in the system that does this 
to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters to stop, you know, stop responding to the effect and start responding to, yeah, this is, this is horrible that people are in this kind of pain and rage and we caused this and we need to repent of it and, and do something different. Like, I mean, I think one of the things that's so interesting, I mean, this is I'm not an original thought to me, but I mean, people, you see white people be like, oh, this is just, I can't believe they, they are looting you know, their own cities, which is funny how a block becomes <laughs> the property of people of color in this moment when, you know, and just to be like, as if there's something, you know, inhumane about it, like, the, or, or as if it's opportunism, like if it were opportunism, it would be happening all the time. And it's not. And I mean, in the reality that, you know, African-Americans continue to serve in this nation and believe in this nation and risk their lives for this nation and, you know, run for office in this nation, building it up instead of tearing it all down, it like defies, um, I, I mean, it just defies reality. So um, anyway, it's a, it's an extraordinary season. Yeah. So um, what, what are you thinking about? <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about two, two things and just to, um, I mean, really continue on this conversation of like, what do I notice about white people in these moments? Um, you know, we are so uncomfortable and instead of feeling our discomfort, we have different ways that we try to get out of feeling that way. So one is to attack the people who are making us uncomfortable, right? So to say, it's your problem because you're not grieving, right? You're not handling it right. You weren't where you were supposed to be when you got killed. You weren't complying, whatever. So like, I feel bad. So you did something wrong. Um, and But the, the other move that I see white people make all the time, um, and I'm pro- I mean, and I... I don't want to be, but I, I have to really be open to the possibility that I do it myself is, is that we, we, <laughs> we start competing with one another about who can be like the wokest white person in the room. And so even in our act of trying to repent and live in a different way, we make it about our performance and really wanting to move in such a way that we'll get cookies and gold stars just for being, you know, like decent. And it's just really interesting and, and frustrating to play, to play out because then, you know, as a white person, you are trying to figure out what is faithful and you're trying to figure out how, um, like when and how to talk about that, right? Because I really, um, like, it's, a, it's, it's wrong if everything you do, you do in public so that people can praise you. But on the other hand, I mean, everything about that is wrong and sick and disgusting. And on the other hand, um, you really care about wanting to show people that you're trying to support and love. Like you, you, you want them to know that you um, stand with them and that you denounce this as evil because, you know, there's a chance that that actually is, um, you know, feels like love, feels like support, right? 
Um, and you have this idea that you want to normalize a different way of responding for other um, white people who might, you know, want to do something different, but need, need a model, need permission, need someone to stand next to you. And you want to like, um, not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? Like you just want to do something that's the right thing to do without it being seen so that it is for Jesus and not for your reputation. And then you throw into the whole mix that like, sometimes you're going to do something that you think is good. And it turns out to be not right. Like you were trying to do something sincerely that would be um, loving and edifying and beneficial. Um, and it just wasn't. And so you, you, you have to sort of go like, it doesn't really matter what I intended to do. It matters what I did. And I just need to like acknowledge it and move on and not make a federal case about it. And also like even this week, like in Charlotte, there was a, a statement that was written by some clergy, um, sort of just like a public letter of repentance and apologies to African-American clergy. Right. So for, so like, it's sent to me, like, are you going to sign it? Like, okay. I mean, is it what I would do? I mean, no, but also am I against the sentiments of the letter? Like, no, I'm not against it. And like, do I want in any way to be perceived as like, I wouldn't sign it because I don't know. So whatever. So you sign it, you move on with your life. And then you have another group of African-American, I mean, no, no, another group of white clergy who then the day after make a public declaration of why they didn't sign it because this, it wasn't enough. Um, and so they don't want to be associated with it. Right. So then you're like, I mean, okay, like gold stars to you because you know, it's just like this competition among whiteness about who can best serve, you know, who can best repent, who can best ally, who can best serve. And, and it's just such a weird, like, thing that is absolutely happening. Um, and it is gross. And it sucks a lot of oxygen out of the room. And that is what I'm thinking about is like how to really move um, in a way that is faithful to Jesus first, and then is um, loving to, you know, vulnerable people in, in this current moment, right? And also not to be so concerned with what people label me as and we we talk about this all the time like do you want to be the thing or do you want to seem like you're the thing right mm -hmm. and it's just it's really challenging um but i mean mainly just the thing i'm noticing is that i mean that white supremacy is is such a thing that even in the moment when you're trying to repent and move in the same way you're still centering whiteness even as you are like making a competition about how you're the best at decentering whiteness. I'm like, this is like some next level. The devil is busy. Stuff. <laughs> um, the so. devil is very busy and wily. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, tricky, tricky, tricky. And I mean, again, like I want to be clear, like I'm not saying this from some perch of like, I mean, like I get, I get sucked into it too. I mean, at the very least, I get sucked into 
like the amount of mental energy I dedicate to that as opposed to just thinking about um, who is actually suffering, which is hashtag not me. <laughs> and, um, you know, anyway, so it's just, it's just a really interesting thing to um, try to figure out how to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ in a white body in this moment. Um, and then to be a pastor on top of it. And then the other thing that I said beforehand that I would just talk about really briefly is, you know, preaching and pastoring a multi-ethnic church. Um, I think we've talked a little bit, I know you and I've talked personally, but I think we've talked a little bit about on the pandemic, I mean, on, on the podcast about how um, pastoring a church in a pandemic is challenging. Pastoring a multi-ethnic church in a pandemic is even more challenging mm -hmm. because, um, you know, different ethnic groups have different levels of risk and different levels of um, agency and how they navigate, how they respond because of, because of the systemic, you know, the systemic racism that we've been talking about this whole podcast. Um, and so when you start making decisions about reopening the church, um, they, they quickly become um, like the, it just is this extra charge. And I, I think like there are just people in my congregation who feel much more confident in assuming certain types of risk because they're able to protect themselves in other areas or because they have health insurance or because frankly, their ethnic group isn't dying as much as other ethnic groups are, you know, and then there, there are other people in our congregation. I mean, people of color in our congregation who are like, Hey, I'm super vulnerable because of the, um, you know, chronic health conditions that I have, some of which is literally genetics, you know, that the genetic code of African-Americans is altered by the depth of the suffering of the ancestors, some of which has to do with, you know, lack of access to economic opportunity, which translates to access to healthcare. And, and there's an environmental racism that adds it all in. And then frankly, just a, a huge and um, healthy measure of suspicion that what institutions in this country are saying is safe is actually safe for people of color since so many people have so clearly like uh, so clearly demonstrated not even historically only but currently that they just don't value the lives of black and brown people as much as they do Caucasian people and so you know all so it's just and so I've just been really um, you know, working with our elders and talking about like, we came into this pandemic as a multi-ethnic church and we need to make sure that we come out of it as a multi-ethnic church. And if, if some of our people are, are eager to come back to service and other people just don't in-person worship and other people don't feel safe yet, I just think that love of Christ compels us to like cool our jets and, you know, stay together apart rather than have one set of, rather than essentially, honestly, create a virtual balcony, right? I don't wow. want to do that. Um, so my elders are, you know, we have talked about that and it has been clear, like, yes, while we might do some things that are on campus that are obviously open to everybody, but with the knowledge that not everyone is going to feel safe to do it, um, our core activity, which is worship, we 
want to wait to resume in-person worship until the majority of our congregation can reasonably feel safe um, doing that together. Um, so there's that. And then you factor in these murders of Black people by, you know, by the police. And as a, a multi-ethnic congregation, we need to address that. But different groups in my congregation need very different kinds of pastoral care in light of this. Like there is a real danger that white people in my congregation think that with me, that we white people in our congregation think that because we are part of a multi-ethnic community, we already have our gold stars and we're done and we don't have any, you know, There's we no don't have any changing. Right. And that's not true. And so pastorally, I, you know, I need to come out strong. I mean, talking to myself and all the other white people in the room about like, this is not, you know, this isn't like you can be a prayerful kind of Christian or a serving kind of Christian or a justice kind of Christian. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> like to be indifferent to injustice is to be indifferent to Jesus, period. Um, but at the same time, you know, people of color in my congregation don't need to be re-traumatized every, you know, like they, they need, um, like uplift and, and, you know, hope and they need, um, promises of God's faithfulness. Right. But like white people in my congregation do not need to be thinking that black Jesus is going to fix it for them. Right. So, I mean, it's just this really interesting thing to, um, navigate. And I mean, I'm glad to have, to have the challenge because it just speaks to what, uh, um, what a gift it is to do this work. But I mean, when I look around, I mean, when we look around at other pastors talking about what their challenges are in this moment, like we, I just, I feel like we have all of them. <laughs> we have yeah. And them. as you talk about the challenges and I think you're exactly right. You're exactly right. What comes to mind is the scripture that you preached um, last Sunday, uh, the dry bones, mm-hmm. because for me, that's always such um, a moving and powerful text because it takes you to both places, right? So whenever I read that, it's like I'm walking with Ezekiel and I can hear the crunch and feel the crunch of the dry bones underneath my feet. Like it, the text takes you there. And so there's a sense in which both the white people and people of color in your congregation need to go there, but for different reasons, right? For yeah. some, it's eye-opening. Needs They need to see, need the awakening. For others, there, there's a catharsis there, right? And, I, yeah. and, and the text then, because um, that's that's part of traditional, quote-unquote, Black preaching, right? So you, and, and but I do think you're right to be sensitive about um, trauma, um, but but there is a sense of let's look at this thing. Let let's take a deep breath. Have the courage to look at it um, because if we if we won't face it, we'll, we'll never deal with it and overcome it. And and so the text takes you there into that valley, and God tells the prophet to walk among the not think about, 
not look yeah. at from a distance, to walk in it. And then, um, you know, Candy's bones live again and you get to um, uh, the bones coming together and, and then there's yeah. this incredible uplift and hope. And I mean, that text does that for you, but it's hard to do that in every sermon. And so well, I, I see the, 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 the task and, before you. And the challenge is like, honestly, I want to say to white people in my congregation, like, you know, because to me, the resurrecting spirit and I believe that is the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Like that is what we mm -hmm. receive on the cost, right? Like I, I just believe that. And so I feel like in the two people, I mean, in the white church, you want to say, we, 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 we have not had the Holy Spirit because there's no resurrection going on in our churches. Like we're not dismantling the system. We're, I mean, mm. right. I mean, like we just, like, I don't care. You can be speaking in tongues and healing and saying, out Sally, but if you this isn't happening, and so it's not here. Like this is the proof. But then to you know people of color in your congregation, you you want to say you know this is the spirit that that has you and has had you and ha has brought you here and will bring you on. I mean, it just you know it's a different. Yeah. It really is a situationally different message and. Um, it's just a, um, you know, I think like when you're back in seminary and you're taking preaching classes and like, there's this ease with which you talk about, like you, you want to be a risky preacher. And like, if you aren't like kind of halfway sure, like halfway afraid that you're gonna commit blasphemy, then you're not really preaching grace or you're like not really trying. And like, there's sort of a, you know, there's this great glory and like really swinging for the fences, even if you don't hit it. And then you sort of get into a place where you realize like, no, this is like, this really matters. And um, there are ways where if you get it wrong, um, I mean, if you get it wrong, like, I mean, I really think a huge, I mean, we, we call ourselves a Christian nation and it's such bullshit. And part of the reason that we are capable of that level of like um, blasphemy is because people have been, you know, the gospel of Christ has been blasphemed in so many Christian churches that people legit don't know who Jesus was and what he stood for. <laughs> and, um, and so like you get it wrong and like, you know, people die. Like, I, do you remember when we went to that very first, um, Willow Creek leadership conference that we leadership went to? Summit. Yeah. Yeah. When John mm -hmm. Edwards brought us to it. And, um, we were, I mean, I think that that was the year that, um, Bill Hybels was preaching and I, I learned a lot for Bill Hybels. So, um, whatever I, I have learned a lot from him and, um, but he was talking about just like the weight of preaching and he was talking about like mentoring other leaders. And mm -hmm. do you remember he was talking about like, you know, businessmen come and say like, by my decisions, people like lose their jobs or keep their jobs. Yes. And then, and then like generals would come and talk to him and say like, by my decisions, people live or die. And he stood up on that stage and he's like, but you know, but none of them have the level of responsibility that I have and that you have because by our decisions and by our work, people live and die for eternity. Mm. And I remember at the time being like, I mean, come on, Bill, <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> like, little more Jesus, little more. I mean, you know, like I just was really, and I still think 
Like that's just too much. But I, but I do think. And see, I thought know, it was in the moment. I was like, oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> I mean, I, I just thought it didn't. I mean, jars of clay, right? <laughs> the treasure in jars sure. of clay, like whatever. But I mean, but now I just, I, you know, I, I have. I do think that if we had preached the gospel more faithfully in this country, we white people, obviously black people have been preaching the gospel faithfully all along. But if white people had preached the gospel more faithfully in this nation, I mean, would George Floyd be alive? Absolutely. Would Breonna Taylor be alive? Absolutely. Would Trayvon Martin be alive? Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, people die because we do not make the case for Christ. And, um, I just sometimes, you know, think that you just, I, I, we just act like it's a, it's a light thing or like, it's about being entertaining or being, you know, it's about being good. It's about being, it's about being good. And it's, it's, it's just so, so much more than that. So um, I was having trouble working on sermon Saturday and um, our friend and colleague, Albert Moses called me Saturday afternoon and says, How, how's it going? It's like, I am just not in a good place and this is not going well. And I'm frustrated because it's Pentecost Sunday and I love Pentecost Sunday and I'm flunking. I mean, I feel like I'm flunking right now. Yeah. And, um, and he asked me a great question. <laughs> he, he asked me, it's a classic black preacher question. It's like, what is the preacher's burden? What has God put on your heart that if you don't share it, people will suffer? People will, what is the burden that you have that must be shared with God's people? And it was the perfect question. Yeah. I mean, I think that my version for that is like, like, I mean, which is not original to me, but like, what, what would you die to tell people what's true? Mm, Yeah. And I, and I mean, there, there ought to be that in every, in every sermon. Um, And, and in a, in a moment like this, where, where (laughs) it's not that anything new is happening, but a lot of things are apocalyptically uncovered and just really reveal, you just realize like there's, um, there's so much at stake because of the power of the gospel to give people wisdom they'll never get on their own, mm. to change people's hearts, to free them from the captivity, to fear um, and selfishness and hate, but mainly fear and pride. I mean, that that changes every, everything. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real, it's a real thing. And I, I think, especially in these days when, I mean, you're preaching to a screen, like I'm preaching to a mostly empty sanctuary. And I mean, I'm not one, like it's my congregation is more rowdy than most Presbyterian churches, but not, I mean, but still like you can't see people's faces. And so you just can't, you know, it's just, I mean, I guess to like be self-aggrandizing, you, you feel a little bit like Paul must have felt sitting in those, 
jail cells, like writing these letters and just pouring his soul out in them. And just, mm. I mean, not only not being able to know how they could ever be received, but like not even knowing if they'd ever even actually get there, right? Like, wow. I mean, it's not like there's an infrastructure to make sure your mail, like, here's your receipt and your insurance that you can pay for. <laughs> I mean, it's just this, um, yeah. Anyway. Well, what are you, uh, what are you preaching about Sunday? You know, it is Wednesday evening and I have no idea uh, what I'm, I'm <laughs> considering preaching something about worship uh, because we, you know, we have this um, yeah. uh, thing from our elders saying, we're not going to go back until we, you know, shift culture in, in, in that area. And so Whenever I think about worship in scripture, two come to mind. One you mentioned earlier, the Second Chronicles 20. Yep. And uh, the other is the, uh, the woman who goes into the dinner party with the alabaster jar of ointment. Um, yep. and her extravagant, unashamed affection for Jesus. And so I'm not sure yet, but uh, uh, perhaps that's where I'm going to be led. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's only Wednesday. Yeah. How about you? Well, my um, plan in January was to preach on Philippians. For January. <laughs> wow. Seems like a long time ago. <laughs> it was. Um, and so I, th I think I'm going to stick to that plan. Um, the challenge is I don't, I mean, I think I'm going to try to rendezvous with, rendezvous with you to get some commentaries, but I don't have a lot of commentaries. And so that's a challenge for me because I really, that, like, it's interesting because I go to the library every week and I, it's such a privilege and a gift and I love it. And it's not even necessarily that I use a lot of things that I read. It's just that like, it just gets you deeper into what the actual text says. And, mm -hmm. um, and then you can like, I just, my experience is the Holy Spirit shows you connections and shows you connections between that word and, and your congregation. And anyway, so um, but I think I am going to stay in Philippians and, um, and the first chapter, cause I'm doing it. I mean, to some extent, a chapter a week, <laughs> but I'm not going to preach the whole chapter. I got four weeks and I'm not you. So <laughs> like, I think you preached through this last year and it took you what, 17 weeks, 16 <laughs> weeks. About it. <laughs> yeah. oh, that was good. Um, so I'm like, name that tune. I'm going to do it in four and leave a whole wow. bunch of stuff. But, um, but I think in that, I mean, I think in this moment, this, the relevance of the fact of where Paul was, um, just, mm. you know, it's just huge. Um, and there's a lot of talk about law and order. And so often we equate that with righteousness and that is such a, um, you know, whatever rinky dink, like that, that's such what's that term that I think Muhammad Ali used about like the rub-a-dub, whatever, like we've just been. Oh, rope-a-dope. Yeah. I mean, like, it's just rope-a-dope. Like that is so, that's anathema to the Christian witness, right? So mm -hmm. to be able to say like, here's the apostle Paul and where was he? He was in jail. And why was he there? Because he challenged the authorities and um, wouldn't, would not submit and disturbed the peace. And he, you know, the righteous place for him to be was, was prison. Um, and, and so that's just something that we really need to sit with right now as we have all our feelings about, you know, what protesters should and shouldn't do and what police 
should and shouldn't do. Um, but also in that very opening, he's got a line about um, just wanting to, I think, it, it increase the knowledge and of the depth of their knowledge and insight. And I just feel like that is something that we just really need to um, mm. Mm. sit with. Because mm. it's not like he's teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's saying mm. to them, like, there, there's a depth to this that you do not yet perceive. And there are insights that you can have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need them. Um, but I, I need to give you the tools um, to be able to leverage the fullness of the revelation. And I, and I, I do think that that is a place of... Um, that is actually maybe a place of real unity um, in this moment, in spite of the very different boats we're we're in in this storm. So, I think that's okay. Mm. But I don't know. I thought I was going to preach about Lance Armstrong last week, and he did not make the cut. So, <laughs> we'll what? It wasn't you know, wasn't that a part I, of the title? Yeah, I couldn't. I, well, I mean, I don't title my sermons, but I, I really thought that was, it just was too much. There's too, there's, there's just so much. And like so much that it's like such a gift sometimes in the preaching moment when you're like, I just want to say this one thing. And it, it's just like, it's important and it needs to be said, but it's just not that hard to, to move from the text to this one. And like right now, I just feel like there's just like nine things that on the surface feel completely unrelated that that need to be uh, anyway i'm just it's just hard and as we've said a million times and then we need to wrap this podcast i know but as we've said a million times before right now it's really hard to think and it's really hard to find space to think yeah and i feel like it's just i mean i know we've said this before that like for such a time as this you become a preacher and yet it's so hard to preach well in this season because yeah and it's it's funny because you're exactly right and in these times i feel weaker <laughs> than ever before um i feel um that i'm not doing enough uh definitely that i am not enough uh, there there's there's there are all of these feelings that um and, and they're true right i am not enough right but but they they seek to undermine my sense that um god is at work and though i am not enough um grace god's grace is sufficient yeah and i think sometimes like we hear people say that and like our natural instinct is like you want to reach in and comfort someone and be like, no, 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 like you are doing a good job and you are enough and you're right. I mean, and like it comes from, I mean, it comes from a really sincere place. I mean, A, because that's your experience of the other person and because you, you know, you want to encourage them. And also like, I just think, I mean, I think you and I, I mean, A, we're sitting in that same place and we have enough whatever common friendship to just say like yeah like you're not enough and neither am I and there's something deeply comforting about having that like affirmed mm -hmm. like your your analysis of yourself or I won't speak about you but my analysis of myself as not being enough and not working hard enough and not like 
you know, that <laughs> it is actually true and the gospel speaks to that, right? And so that is what can give you strength to take a next step and to move on is not thinking like, okay, well, maybe I am enough. So I just, you know, just to say like, no, I'm not, but that doesn't undo the power of the gospel in, in these days. And, um, cause I think we're all just so, so stripped of our illusions that there's enough love and enough hope and enough progress and change. I mean, there's none of, there's not nearly enough of any of that. Um, so my only hope is in the confounding goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his presence and the fact that the cross was the inauguration of a new age. And I don't manufacture that. Yeah. And, you know, I spoke about the acceleration in the church um, at the beginning of this podcast I can't help but believe that there will be that same acceleration and maybe already happening in my own soul. I don't see it. I don't feel it at this point, um, but I can't help but believe that the grace of God um, isn't active and working in me to not only you know make the church different, but to make me different, to help me to level up in uh, my own humanity and discipleship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the the birds at your house are amazing. <laughs> amazing. They've been singing throughout this podcast. I mean, it is like, I am famously not a nature girl, but um, it, it, it is, it is a sign. Um, this, this, <laughs> yeah. And well, before we before we end this podcast, just a quick shout out to uh, listeners in Canada and Ireland. I've noticed for the past couple of weeks, we've had listeners in those two countries. And so thank you. Wow, that's amazing. That's really fun. Uh, well, we are so grateful um, to um, be able to talk to you all. And thank you for listening. And if you want to know more about Yolanda's church, you should Google Derida Church in Charlotte, and it will pop you over to their website. And if you want to watch um, the messages, um, the sermons that Yolanda has been preparing for his congregation, you should go to the Derida Church YouTube channel or the can't do it. The Podbean website, Derida Church, every time I get it wrong. Um, and if you would like to find out more about the Grove Charlotte, where I serve, um, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org and you can um, check out uh, the sermons at the Grove by going to iTunes and searching for the Grove Church podcast. And um, we will make another one next week. 